How does faith work? It has production in service and ministry. It has production in faith and ministry. James chapter 2 verse 14, James chapter 2 verse 17, James chapter 2 verse 26 emphasize on this. But I want to focus more on what Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 10 says, By grace you are saved through faith. And when you skip through, it says created by who? By Jesus Christ unto good works. Alright, so that's how it is. Faith works. It has production in every service and ministry of the body of Christ. Now, our final principle, which is the eighth one here, is faith alone overcomes the world. Faith alone overcomes the world. As 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 to 5 says, you are an overcomer by a margin of faith. All right? Now, let's go to verse 6 of Philemon, where Paul is now speaking, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may come effective, may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Now, the fellowship of our faith is the fellowship we have or we all have in the three members of the Godhead. So, the fellowship with the Father and the Son. First John chapter 1 verse 3 says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful, through whom you were called unto fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The fellowship with the Holy Spirit can be seen in Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, where it says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As well as Philippians 2 verse 1, where it says, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. So Paul's desire is that this fellowship, that is by faith, because our fellowship is God, who is invisible, will become effective. And the effectiveness of our fellowship, that is by faith, is found in us and in others. Remember, we cannot add anything or take anything away from God. Now, we also see this verse that must be added to faith. Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in Christ in you for Christ's sake. The word knowledge there is a reference to full knowledge that is to be applied to life. This knowledge is of good things, all right, which looks at the intrinsic or absolute value, hence divine good rather than comparable human good. This thing that we see are in Philemon. Paul knows this is a man who walks by the Spirit and walks in truth. He is a mature believer and needs not to learn new doctrine 
to make his faith effective, but rather use and apply what is already in him. Now, what is the reason here? It is for Christ's sake. It is for Christ's sake. It looks not at our position, but with an with looking to Christ, with us looking to Christ, or with a view towards Christ. And this looks at what, at which, that which should motivate us looking towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Many times this phrase is used when adversity is in view, when enmity, when trials come in play. How? We endure because we are motivated by Christ keeping our eyes fixed upon him. I love what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 to 12 to 2 to, to 2 says, where it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the faith heroes of the Old Testament that is, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That was me snapping my fingers because I'm excited. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that amazing? So in some ways, we could say Paul is setting Philemon up. What he will be called upon to do will not be easy. It will go against everything that Philemon has ever practiced as a slave owner. But the motive for doing this will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now, as a result of Philemon's spiritual life, we look at his spiritual life for other believers, and Paul has come to have much joy and comfort or encouragement here. This shows that um, we have a profound effect upon others in the faith. That's what I can say. Our love for them can reflect the love Christ has for us. Remember what John 3, 13 verse, verse 34 says. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So, here's the thing. Write this down. Meditate on this. Ponder on this. Listen to me. Spiritual love is the love that Christ has for us, in us, and expressed to others. So this brings about joy and encouragement. We need both of these things. And they come to us and through others who love as Christ loved. Suppose joy and encouragement is a result of the result of Philemon's love. Other believers in Colossae have been refreshed in their emotions and appreciation by Philemon. Matthew 11 verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
the result of our faith in God brings about rest. What kind of rest? A faith kind of rest. But here is the rest that here that 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 rest in our emotions, which can be vo volatile and yet can also be the source of great appreciation, have rest because of the spiritual love of one another. So Paul sees this in Philip, and Paul has great joy, and we should to when we come to know a fellow believer whose love is refreshing refreshing, and gives us rest, right? And so that's where we end with that. Which brings us to a new whole paragraph where Paul now comes to the issue at hand. After we see the relationship between Paul and, and Philemon and how he is bringing about all these exhortations and all these, you know, reminders of spiritual maturity. He's now bringing the issue at hand from verse 8 up to 20. Verse 8 reads, Therefore, I have, if it, sorry, therefore, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. So, what is therefore, therefore, there? Because Paul has just described Timothy of Philemon's maturity. I don't know why I love Timothy. <laughs> He's described Philemon's maturity in Christ and he knows that if he wanted to order Philemon to do something because it was proper in the Lord, Philemon would have done it. But he will not take that approach. He's taking a different approach. Alright? Look at verse 9. Yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. For love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul. I'm such a person as Paul. The aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There it is again. So, Paul's appeal will not be based on law. That's what he's trying to tell us here. From law, you can order someone to do something, but it is often done unwillingly. That's the problem. Let me read for you what Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 through 14 says. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is every man who does not abide by all things written in the book of law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not by of faith. On the contrary, who, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that Christ, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, here's the thing. While law works, it does so only in operation and by order. Meaning love, law, sorry, cannot really give individual spiritual freedom. Only love will provide the sphere of freedom to do 
or not to do. Now let's go to verse 10 real quickly of Philip. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. Uh-oh. Now here Paul mentions Onesimus for the first time. Can you imagine the look of Philemon's face at this moment? <laughs> Not only does Paul speak of his runaway slave, but he calls him my child whom I have begotten. Philemon had been witnessed to by Paul, and Paul was his spiritual father. And now Paul says Onesimus is his spiritual child, which means that Philemon and his runaway slave Onesimus are brothers in Christ. Wow. Now the Greek word for appeal here means to come alongside and cheer on or encourage. So it was a word that was used more like in an athletic setup in ancient Greece and Rome where the fans in the stands cheering on the favorite athlete. So the fan could not run the race or perform the task, but the fan could cheer on the runner or the participant. It is translated as an urge or an exhortation or as an encouragement or as comfort. Those are the synonyms, right? So this is one of the greatest things that we can do for fellow believers. We cannot make decisions for them. Please, I repeat, even for spiritual leaders, especially for spiritual leaders, you cannot make decisions for your people or take action. They must do that on their own. But you can encourage them to do the will of God. And this gives the other believer maximum freedom to make a decision out of their free will. Without being coerced, but with encouragement. I love what Galatians 5 verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 11 of Philemon says, This is one of the great puns, or sorry, it, 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 it brings out the great puns in the New Testament, like the great oofs, but then it's often missed out in translations. It is often missed out in translations. Translations don't do a good job on this one at all. But I'm using this. Listen, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and me. The name Onesimus means profitable in the Greek language. When Paul uses the word useless and useful, he's using a synonym for the meaning of the name Onesimus. So we could say Onesimus was not Onesimus, but now he is Onesimus. <laughs> and his usefulness is profitable. It is profitable and it is to both Paul and Philemon. And because he is now a fellow believer of Christ, what is my principle here? What should I give you as a principle here? Listen, the greatest benefit that we can be to another Christian begins with our personal relationship with Christ Jesus. It will only be through the Holy Spirit working in us 
with the doctrines that we have, that grace will overflow from us to others. First Corinthians chapter nine verse eight. Second Corinthians rather, chapter nine verse eight says, "And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed." I love that. Verse twelve. The Bible reads. And I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. Ooh. Come on, Paul. Come on, Paul. That is so deep. That is so deep. Sent back there is a Greek word which means to send again or to send back. I can call it an an arrowist, an arrowist, an active indicative, which would indicate that. This has already already occurred, like it has occurred. Onesimus is in the city of Colossae waiting for Philemon's decision. And Paul adds that in sending Onesimus back to Colossae, he sends his very heart. By saying this, this, this just grips my heart right there. By saying this, Paul is indicating that Onesimus has found a place in Paul's heart or emotions. It's that deep. Meaning, to reject Onesimus would, in a sense, be a rejection of Paul himself. Did you hear that? That is deep. That is deep. That is serious. That is... <laughs> Verse 13. Whom I wished to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Now, apparently... Apostle Paul considered seeking permission from Philemon to keep Onesimus with him in Rome as a fellow worker of Christ. I mean, look at verse 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you as Dumat, Aristarchus, or Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. He already had a number of men with him. So the idea of returning Onesimus was thought about, but then dismissed. However, in what brief time he spent with Paul in Rome, he did minister to him. He did. So Paul again states that he, he is not in person, in prison, sorry, because of Nero or any law, but because of the gospel. I love that. I love that. Verse 14. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your God, your goodness should not be as it were by compulsion, but of your own free will. This is really a very strong statement. The word in Greek for goodness there is one which would be divine good. It would be divine good. But Paul does not want Philemon even to do this because he knows it is what God would want. But rather out of his own free will. And the Greek word for that is a word found only here in the New Testament. Only here. It is, a, it is from this which is the word of compassion or mercy. So, Paul wants Philemon to make his decision 
to receive Onesimus back out of what is already in Philemon's soul. The doctrine he has and has been using in his Christ-centered life. Paul wants to avoid any hint of compulsion on Philemon's part. He wants it done willingly. Verse 15, real quickly. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while that you should have him back forever. Strong statement as well. Because Paul puts a very positive spin to this whole situation. Anyone stealing from you and a servant running away would be viewed in human viewpoint as not being very good, right? But Paul makes it good by finding the good in it. Where he says, parted from you for a while. This is somewhat of an understatement, right? Because Onesimus had stolen money and ran away. But Paul minimizes the sin because he knows the sin was forgiven of God. And this allows him to look at the positive side of it. While recognizing the wrong that was done, there is no denial of the crime. He sees a positive outcome of it. That you should have him back forever. And with this statement, Paul has taken the situation out of the temporal and put it into the eternal. He has taken it away from the human viewpoint and examined it under a divine viewpoint. He has taken it out of law and put it into grace. He has taken it from Satan and given it to God. And that is exactly what we can do as we deal with the bad things that seem to happen to us so often in life. This is not mere positive thinking or deceiving of self that everything is alright even when it is not. That's not what I'm talking about. Instead, what I'm saying here is see things through God's eyes. Recognize that God is in control and God can turn that which man sees as a curse into a blessing. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 13 to 14 says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will affect be after him. What is the principle here? God has made both adversity and prosperity. How do we want know what the outcome of this will be? Therefore, the outcome is in God's hand. And even when circumstances feel bad, we can find in them or the outcome of them the good. Romans 8 verse 28 says, And we know that the cause of God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. This is the divine optimism based upon our trust in the character of God. The 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
This is Onesimus' new position as a result of his salvation. As a Christian, he is equally privileged and equally opportuned in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 tells us, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Every morning Pharisees would pray a prayer, Thank you God for not making me a Gentile, a slave or a woman. Paul's statement stands in contradiction to the prayer he offered as an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 says, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Then Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 tells us, A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, and slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. John 17 verse 11 says, uh, this is Jesus' high priest pray, and I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name that thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, the principle should be clear here. The reason I mention all these verses is there is no distinction in Christ for the child of God. We are one in Christ. Our unity with one another begins not with other or one another or but with our unity our unity with Christ which comes through our position in him. All right? In the Bible there are seven together the seven togethers they call them which summarize the completeness of our union in Christ. We are crucified together with Christ. We are dead together with Christ, buried together with Christ, made alive together with Christ, raised together together with Christ, sufferers together with Christ, and glorified together with Christ. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 to 6 teaches us unity in the royal family of God. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 to 6, there are four concepts of this. The first concept is the mandate our unity, which is in verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Number two, the basis of, our, of the unity, which is in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. Then there is number three, the identifier of unity, which is in verse 5. One Lord, 
one faith, one baptism. And then there is the source of unity, which is verse 6. The one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, only God can provide unity in the royal family. God provides unity for the church through the doctrine of the church. Unity is a provision of grace. It is not the striving of human power. It is not human personality. It is not a system of patronizing one another under public relation techniques. No. In Ephesians 4, what we have seen is not only how to avoid fragmentation in the body of Christ, but how to achieve unity through God's grace provision for each believer in the royal family. And with that as a beginning of verse 4, of Ephesians verse chapter 4, sorry, let's go to the end of that chapter, which is verse 30, 32. And be kind to one another, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now let's go back to Philemon. We are about to wrap it up. Verse 17. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Now the word regard there is in this in this context means to hold in opinion. If you hold me in opinion, and the word accept there is to accept him, like to welcome him, right? And Paul uses this word in Romans 14 and 15. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Let him, let him not, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. All right, and then you see it in chapter fifteen. Wherefore, accept one another as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Listen to me. Our acceptance of each other is based upon the clearly stated biblical fact that God has accepted us. This divine acceptance is often overlooked when we consider spirituality. You are accepted. I'm going to quote James B. Nelson, who quoted Paul Tillich in his book, Embodiment. Listen to this. You are accepted. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year and long for perfection of life does not appear when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes, as the moment of wave of light breaks through our heart, our darkness, and it is 
as though a voice were saying, you are accepted, you are accepted by that which is greater than you in the name of which you do not really know. Do not try to know. Do not try to know any, to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted by God. When that happens to us, we experience grace. And this, my friends, I end that quote. Why does this come to mind? It is because we are so accepted by God that we can accept others as God accepts us. And this is a reflection of grace principle. God accepts us and we accept others. Those who God accepts, any friend of his is a friend of mine. That's the concept. So when we look at verse 17, Paul uses the word partner as well to show the relationship there that is there between himself and Philemon. And the word there is used for someone who shares in something with another person. It has a very literal use as seen in the partnership of some of the disciples of the fishing trade. And here it is used of the partnership these two have in whom? In Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we hear these words. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promise, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Listen, we share or are partners of the divine nature. We are also partners with Christ in his glory. And 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 says that, Therefore, I exalt the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. We, we are also partners with other believers, and we share in the suffering and in their encouragement. As 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 7 would tell us, And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Right? So then, we are partners with Christ and we are partners with one another. And Philemon shared this with Paul, his suffering, his imprisonment, and now shares with him in the joy of the salvation and return of his beloved Onesimus. And in verse 18, we read, But if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So here Paul now begins, or becomes a substitute for Onesimus before Philemon. This parallels with what Jesus did for us before the Father, right? He took upon himself our sins and that all that we had done that wronged God in any way and all that we owed God in any way and went to the cross and paid the debt. He came to pay the debt he did not owe for those who owed a debt they could not 
Hey, that's what scripture says. Verse 19, Paul goes from the expression of words of Christ to being the very, very Jewish man. He says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. This is like him saying, well, I will not mention it, but you do owe me your very salvation. <laughs> I think one more than anything else, this shows the open and honest relationship between two friends, right? Like I'm sure Philemon laughed at this statement and he said this was typical of his friend Paul, right? And in this, I just want to point out the doctrine of Category 3 love, something I call Category 3 love. Well, Category 2 love is between uh, male, female, in sex. This love can include both male and female friends, man to man, woman to man, woman to woman. And Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, verse 24 tells us, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Right? Category 3, love has a great stability and power. This is the love that I'm talking about. We see this power in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, which reads, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. This love is also seen in John 15 verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Proverbs 27 verse 9 to 10 says, Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So doth the sweetness of a man's friend by a hearty counsel. Thine own friend and thy father's friend forsake not. Neither go into thy brother's house in the day of thy calamity, for better is a neighbor that is near than a brother far off. So, category 3 love provides pleasant and relaxing environments, right? Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 tells us, Hatred stir up strife, but love covers all sins. Category 3 love is freedom from hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the normal development where love is not present. And so, that is the norm without love. Look at uh, Romans 12 verse 9. Let love be without pre-assumption. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to what is good. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 to 8. Like I told you beforehand, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not become or act unbecomingly. 
it does not seek its own it is not provoked it does not take into account a wrong suffered it does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never fails category 3 love when bonifide is outgoing in objectivity rather than subjective and hypersensitive or hypersensitive you find yourself in hypersensitivity and you can be sure you have no capacity of friendship none in fact galatians 5 verse 13 says for you were called to freedom brethren only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another Second Samuel 1:26 I am distressed for you my brother Jonathan you have been very pleasant to me your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women category 3 love between David and Jonathan lasted Jonathan's entire life and extended to his child Mephibosheth sorry category 3 love between believers motivates to grace oriented in grace activity and we see that in verse 10 to 12 of Philemon beseech thee for my son Onesimus whom i have begotten in my bones which in time past was to thee unprofitable but now profitable to thee and to me whom i have sent again thou therefore receive him that is mine own bowels So category 3 love is motivated to give on the basis of capacity for love. Right? Look at first Samuel chapter 8 verse 3 to 4. I want you to understand this. Then Jonathan mm-hmm, and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle listen uh, David doesn't have anything to give do you hear me David has nothing to give all he has is the head of Goliath and Goliath's armor So Jonathan who was very wealthy initiated love. Category 3 love has enemies and can be destroyed. You can actually lose your friends. Job 19 verse 19 says, "All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me." Proverbs 16:28, "A perverse man soweth strife, and a slander separateth close friends." by by these things it is destroyed by sins of the tongue as proverbs 7 verse 19 says he that covereth his transgression seeketh love but he that repenteth a matter separateth very friends love can be destroyed by national catastrophe love can be counterfeited there is such a thing as pseudo friendship we see it in proverbs 19:6 to 
many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. All the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go after him? How far from him? He pursued them with words, yet they are wanting to him. This is beautiful. But then the removal of category filler is part of extreme damage. Extreme damage. Let's go back to Philemon. <laughs> Chapter 20. Or verse 20, sorry. To 21, which is Paul's final appeal. So, Paul says this. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. So, what are we seeing in Paul's final appeal? He speaks of benefit or advantage, not directly from God, but from God working in Philemon's life. So, it is in the Lord. It is not just by Philemon's hand. And here's the principle here. We benefit so much when others allow God to work in their lives to a point of trusting and obey the word of God or the word of God. The word for benefit in this passage is very unique to this passage only. Only. The word is hoax logonomia or logonomia, a word that is only used once. It is middle voice of benefit rather than passive because both will benefit. Alright? So it looks at someone, a person being profitable to you or an advantage to you. Since both profit, it is a win-win situation. And he says, refresh my heart in Christ, which is a description of the benefit. Paul's heart will be refreshed. The word refreshed was used of Paul for the refreshment of the human spirit and the refreshing of the heart as it is used here. But the word heart is not cardia, but it is splatium, a splatium, which is used five times in all his letters and three times in the shortest of all letters. It refers to affection, it refers to compassion, it refers to feelings, it refers to emotions. So, Paul is in prison in Rome and at times is emotionally down. And he tells Philemon how he can lift him up emotionally. So this is part of the encouragement we as believers can have towards one another. To lift up, yet we often tear down. That's the problem. Look at Romans chapter 12 verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Verse 16 says, Be of the same mind towards one another. And do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. 13 verse 8 of Romans says, Own nothing to anyone except love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Romans 14 verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another, anyone, 
anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in the brother's way. Romans 14 verse 19 says, So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 15 verse 7 says, Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. Verse 14 says, And the concerning of, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to also admonish one another. Finally, 16 verse 16 says of Romans, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Listen, we do not find, we do not find, we don't find that we are to team one another down, tearing one another, attacking one another, straightening one another, judging one another, condemning one another, and so on. Yet, this seems to be the highest standard relationship among Christians today. You need to honor the royal family of God. That's what you need to do. Ephesians 4, 29-32 tells us, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all other malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ in God also has forgiven you. Philemon chapter 21, or verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Part of the relationship here between Paul and Philemon is a relationship of confidence that leads to trust. Okay? We have two very important words here. Confidence and obedience. Pay attention. Here the word for confidence is often translated as persuaded, convinced, but also trust and obey, which is both, right? So, when followed by the dative as it is here, obedient, it is carrying an idea of relying upon or trusting. Okay? So the word with the negative means unbelief or lack of belief. And the word for obedience here is in Koine Greek, not found in earlier Greek, and looked a slave, it seemed like it was to denote a slave obeying a master, but also out of sincerity of belief. So this is the idea word for the New Testament writers which they use because our faith in God must precede our obedience to God. And one lexicon actually says it this way. It refers to the faith that is always willing to obey God 
a faith that is always willing to obey God. So, when we see the word belief, faith, trust, obey, we are not looking at separate activities, but only one activity that takes the, the believer from faith in itself, or faith in self, or in the world system, or in others, or in false gods, to a trusting and obeying of God. We obey out of either empiricism, rationalism, or faith, right? The empirical obedience comes about as we observe and sense what is best or what makes us feel best. A rational obedience is based on what we think, what we can figure out as being best for ourselves or those we care for and love. Within any obedience is a certain amount of pragmatism. What is best for us either way is our sense and feelings by way of thinking. This pragmatism may and really should extend to others and we see a value for self in what we do that is best for others. So, the only obedience that is acceptable to God who is perfect and does not need our obedience is faith. We trust in the God we cannot see and then obey Him. Christians can obey God's word out of empiricism, I should let you know that, or rationalism, but it is of value, it is of value to and glorify only yourself. The only pure acceptable way to obey God, I repeat, is to believe in Him. Put faith in Him. Trust in Him. Obey Him. This begins to benefit us because we depend upon Him and more importantly, it brings glory to God. He says, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And Paul is confident in writing to Philemon and believers that Philemon will go above and beyond what is asked. What is the conclusion here? The conclusion is now this. Verse 22. And at the same time, you also prepare for me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Now this is a guest room and Paul anticipates visiting Colossae for the first time. The yo and the you is plural and it refers to Philemon's household. And verse 23 here where he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow co-workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And hereby concluding the book of Philemon. What is my takeaway here? Forgiveness is great in the eyes of God. Any Christian who has come to believe in Jesus Christ and is saved must treasure the value of forgiveness because just as Christ forgave you, you are also obliged to forgive others. 
and I rest my case. Thank you very much for, for listening to my long exposition of Philemon, which is short. Because if we get to do this in a preaching setup, it would be longer than this. I would probably break this down into a month of teaching, which would be like four sessions or eight sessions, afternoon and evening sessions, or probably even the weekly service session. But here we have it in a nutshell, and I'm grateful to God that we were able to, to go through it together. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Feel free to share and feel free to come through for more series on exposition of the Bible. God bless you.